One of the things that's been really cool about working with our students in the last couple of years is that we have several others in the group who have felt called to ministry or to missions, and God has blessed Gateway with people who have grown up at Gateway and who are now young adults who are serving in full-time missions or in ministry. There are people like Jesse Rudy, who a couple of years ago was here at Gateway as a successful attorney and felt like God was moving him to go to work for International Justice Mission. And so now he works full-time in a foreign country serving God's purposes in in a really big way. For most of us at Gateway, our sense of calling is not going to be that kind of magnitude. It's not going to be to quit your job and go to another land. That's not what God will move most of us to do. But if God has been stirring your heart over the last several weeks as we've talked about missional living, then my challenge to you would be to own it and wrestle with that sense of calling and figure out how to get from where you are right now to where God wants you to be. We've been talking about missional living the last several weeks, and by missional living I mean the idea that everyday Christians, people who are just normal, you know, they got real jobs and real families and real pressures, But they belong to Jesus, and because of that, they live their life in a way that leverages their resources, their skills, their opportunities for letting other people know about God's love for them and what Jesus has done for them. And so, this morning, we're going to take a couple of minutes and talk about what happens when God moves you. What happens when you feel like God might be calling you, or He's sort of like giving you a little push in the right direction. How do you recognize that? How do you know what to do? So let's read this passage together out loud. This is Isaiah's calling. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a great passage in Scripture. It's what we sang about this morning. So if you'd read out loud with me, and we'll just kind of work our way through this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. I think this is an awesome passage, and even though this is a very dramatic calling, probably the most dramatic encounter in Scripture of someone hearing from God in this vision that Isaiah has, and even though this is not the experience that most of us will have, if we feel a calling or a prompting from God, there's some great takeaways from it. 
Isaiah is the first of the major prophets, and by major, uh, Bible scholars mean he had a long book. His book of prophecy is the first in Scripture, and it's the longest, and it's incredibly influential. Had a huge impact on the New Testament. Jesus echoes much of what the book of Isaiah has to say. And so, in a lot of ways, Isaiah is like a biblical superhero. And this is the story, you know, of how he came to understand God's call on his life. But even though this is kind of a melodramatic and way different from the way most of us will feel called, some great lessons that we ought to tune into. So, the first one is an accurate assessment. An accurate assessment. So uh, Isaiah has a very clear picture of who God is and an accurate assessment of himself. And I think this is at the heart of worship, to realize how high and holy and pure and set apart and completely different God is and how messed up we as humans are, how broken, how flawed, how sinful we are. If, you know, everyday man is at floor level and Isaiah, who's this Bible superhero, is like at this level then God is like at this level times four billion. I mean, there's an enormous difference between where Isaiah is and where God is, and he recognizes that. It's very clear to him. One translation has him saying, I am in so much trouble when he realizes he's in God's presence because he's not worthy to be in the same building. He's painfully aware of his flaws and failures. And I think each one of us needs a very clear understanding of who we are and who God is if we want to be useful to him, if we want him to direct us, to write us into the script of his redemptive story in the world. We have to recognize that God's in charge and we are not. He's the one that establishes priorities. And yes, we have to make a living. And yes, cars are useful. And we may own a house or we may rent an apartment. And we have physical health concerns that we need to worry about. But those things are not the same as God's eternal purposes. And he gives us an opportunity, an invitation to be involved with him in advancing his kingdom in the world. And to lift our gaze above those earthly things and to be useful in a way that changes all eternity for people. But if we don't recognize who he is and who we are, then we're not going to be very useful to him. A second helpful understanding from this passage has to do with atonement from God. Atonement's kind of a weird word. We don't use that much in English, but the English word, really, it's at one meant. So it means harmony. Like if you're married and you're at one ment, then you get along with your spouse. And so the idea is that Isaiah realizes and admits how broken he is and how sinful his people are. And one of the seraphs, one of these winged creatures, shouting, holy, 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 goes to the altar and picks up a hot coal and brings it over and touches Isaiah on the lips. Now, one of the significant things about that is Isaiah has just confessed, oh, I am in so much trouble. I am a man of unclean lips. And he doesn't know it yet, but God is going to call him to be a spokesman for God. So the very thing that he is most concerned about, God provides a way to repair the damage, to restore the relationship with God. And God purifies the very part of Isaiah's body that is identified by Isaiah as the problem. Some of you have heard Romans 3.23, where Paul says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Just two verses later, Paul says, Christ 
gave up his life on the cross for our atonement so that we could be one with God the Father. We can have a restored relationship with him and our sins and our mistakes and our failures won't count against us. That happens not because we deserve it, not because we did anything to bring it about, but because of God's love and God's initiative. So if you want a life that really counts for something, if you want a life that means more than just dollars and cents and square footage in your house and what kind of car you drive, if you want a life that's characterized by God's power and God's purposes working in you and through you, then it starts with admitting your brokenness and accepting the atonement from God. Some of you, you know, have been hanging out at Gateway for a while. I think wisely trying to understand, is, is Christianity for me? I've got doubts and concerns and some things make sense, a lot of it doesn't. So you're here and you're kind of like an outsider looking in trying to figure out how God and church and spiritual stuff intersects with everyday life. And I think for you, God may be saying, look, here's the next step for you. Would you just take that step? Would you trust me? Would you admit you need me and accept my grace and my love? And then would you walk with me? That's the invitation. That's what atonement does for us. A third element out of Isaiah's story that I want you to notice is aggressive submission. So submission means basically yielding to somebody else. So think about you're driving down the road and you're getting on the freeway and as much as you hate to do it, you actually have to yield and wait till somebody lets you in. Most of us, we submit passively, maybe even begrudgingly. We don't really want to submit, but it's cheaper than having an accident. So we wait until there's an opening in traffic, even though we don't want to. But Isaiah's attitude here isn't one of passive submission. When he's here, Isaiah doesn't wait for somebody else to raise their hand. When God says, who am I going to send? Isaiah's like, pick me. Hey, God, I'm over here. I'm ready to go. Put me in the game, coach. He's actively pursuing what God wants for him. He doesn't have a lengthy explanation of what the task is. He doesn't have all of the details. He doesn't have all of his questions answered. And yet, he says, hey, I'm ready to go. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. I loved what Marissa said. You know, it's kind of cool to think that God would use me because I'm just an ordinary person. I think of my own life and how, how many things I've screwed up, how many people I've hurt, how often I drop the ball, how many areas I struggle in, and it's amazing to me that God would be willing to use me in a way to encourage other people. I have that same feeling that Marissa has. And God offers to write us into his redemptive story. We get to be included if we're willing to submit to him. And rather than you know, kind of waiting and see if somebody else will answer the call, the very best way to submit to him is aggressively, proactively. Now, Isaiah's call was way more dramatic than ours typically will be. And I don't know if the reason he's a Bible superhero is because he had this awesome call, or if that's why his call was so awesome is because God was going to make him into a Bible superhero. But I want you to get an idea of some of the other callings in the Bible because there are others that are much more relatable to us. So uh, let's talk about some other callings in the Bible, and we're going to run through this stuff very quickly. I'm going to cover a lot of ground in the next couple of minutes. Don't worry about 
scribbling down notes. If you want, you can go to our website in a couple of days, and I'll have these verses and ideas listed. So I don't want you to worry about capturing everything unless there is an idea here or a passage that sort of sticks in your head, in which case write it down and then carve out some time this week to think some more about it. So the first calling to think about would be Abraham's. This isn't, I'm not listing all of them. There are tons in the scripture, but in Abraham's case, God says one day to Abraham, hey, I want you to pack up and leave, and I'm going to take you someplace else. And Abraham goes. God says, I will bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. In many ways, Abraham's call is the same call that God gives to us. He says, hey, if you'll trust me, if you'll move, I will bless you, but I want you in turn to be a blessing to other people. And without any hesitation, Abraham starts moving. And this is a great faith story of God using this seriously flawed man in a major way because he was willing to move when God nudged him. All right, Christmas, we're about a month away, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a great example of calling. So you remember, Gabriel appears to her and says, Hey, Mary, got a surprise for you. You're going to be pregnant. And I know what you haven't done, but this is the child of God. This is God's only child. He's going to be the Savior of the world. And how does Mary respond? It's awesome. I pray this is the way we would respond when God gives us an overwhelming assignment. She says, I am the Lord's humble servant. I'm good with whatever God wants because I'm just a normal person and it's so cool that God would use me. And then when Jesus calls his first disciples, you remember, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Right after that, in the first chapter of John, there are some disciples of John the Baptist. So these are guys that have been hanging out with John the Baptist who was preparing the way for Jesus. John has made it clear, I am not the guy. I'm just getting the road ready for the one that God is going to send. So they hear this, they've heard about Jesus, and they want to check him out. So these disciples say to Jesus, where do you live? And, you know, it's kind of a a noncommittal way of saying, could we hang out with you today? And Jesus says, come, see for yourself. Check it out. You're welcome to come along. Just eyeball what's going on and decide whether you want to be a part of it. Think about doubting Thomas. You know, after the resurrection of Jesus, It was hard for many to believe, but Thomas, who's one of Jesus' closest friends, says, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands. A couple of days later, he's in Jesus' presence. And instead of Jesus getting frustrated or angry with him, when Jesus says, Thomas, he says, Thomas, reach out and touch me. Look with your own eyes. You see this? Feel my side and believe. God called Thomas to believe, but he made it easy for him to do that. Or think about Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She was a a very successful businesswoman in Europe. And when Paul began to preach in that area, she responded and committed her life to Jesus with great enthusiasm. So her whole family becomes Christ followers. And it looks like she was a key player in the start of the first church in the town of Philippi, which was a, a Roman in the Roman province of Macedonia. And so when Paul and Silas are released miraculously from prison, the place they go is Lydia's house. And that's where they meet up with all of the other believers in Philippi, and they rejoice. So it's like she either has a house church, or she is like the one who is resourcing and pulling together the believers in that town. So God uses her in a major way to fuel his church, and to offer hands-on support to missionaries like Paul and Silas. So there are tons of examples of how God deals with people in Scripture. Different people, he calls to different things in different ways. All right, 
last thing I want to touch on this morning is some principles that you might find helpful as you wrestle with your own sense of calling, as you try to figure out, hey, is God moving me? Is he tapping me on the heart? Is he sort of pushing me forward? Is he kicking me in the seat of the pants and saying, I really need to get going? Don't worry about writing these down, but just, you know, if something sticks in your thinking, then, then come back to it. Uh, first principle, the more you know of God's general calling, the easier it is to recognize his specific calling. So there are some things that God calls all of us to do. Love your enemies. Pursue reconciliation. Serve the least of these. Love each other sacrificially. The easier you understand those principles, the more comfortable with you are in living those out, the easier it's going to be for you to recognize when God calls you to do something specific. So if you know God's heart for love and compassion, especially with people that are overlooked by others, then you'll understand why maybe your heart starts to beat a little faster when you read about the West Virginia Christmas Project. Maybe that's God stirring you up to go on the trip with us on December 12th. Maybe it's because he wants you to tackle one of those extra credit assignments. I don't know, but a great way to get more comfortable with God's sense of calling on your life is to get very familiar with his general calling to all Christians. Secondly, the closer you are to God, the easier it is to see him at work. You know, if you're at a party and you see a person across the room that you want to get to know. Maybe it's somebody at work, and you'd like to kind of transfer in their department and work for them. Or if you're a a high school guy, it's a good-looking girl, and you want to get to know her. You can stand on the other side of the room. You can read their lips. You can see how people kind of generally react around them, but it would be way more informative for you to get much closer to them. Maybe even interact yourself. But at least there, you could hear what they're saying. You could see how they connect with the people around them. Sometimes. That's how it is with God. We may feel distant or disconnected with him, but it's not because God has put the distance there. It's because we haven't invested the time or effort or energy to draw near to him, to spend time with him. If you want to hear from God, if you want to be useful to him, then pursue him. Get close to him. Do everything in your power to stay near to him. Maybe that means joining a small group or scheduling time in your day where you can pray and you can read the scripture and you can start serving. And as you move closer to God, he's going to bless your efforts. Another idea, better listening leads to better hearing. If you doubt that, men, just ask your wife and they can explain it to you. For me personally, I find that a lot of my time with God is dominated by me doing the talking. It's me asking him for stuff that I think I need or asking him to intervene or to work circumstances out for my advantage. Sometimes I'm asking him to do that on behalf of somebody else, but I have found that I don't spend nearly enough time in silence listening for God's voice. I don't clear my prayer agenda and say, hey God, what do you want to say to me? Is there something you want me to do? When I read a passage of Scripture, I'm challenged to say, okay, God, as I read this, would you bring to mind, is there something you want to change in me? Is there some action you want me to take? If we turn down the background noise, eliminate the distractions, we can get better at listening, and better listening leads to better hearing. Another principle, confirm what you think God is wanting you to do. A lot of times, you know very clearly what God wants you to do. So if you're walking down the street, and there's a homeless person, and they're hungry, and you have money to buy them a sandwich, that's probably what you need to do. If someone is sitting in the cafeteria at school by themselves, 
and God sort of gives you a shove in their direction, he's probably saying, you need to go over there and sit with them. They look lonely. They could use a friend. At other times, there are things that are bigger or more challenging or less familiar to us, and we feel like God is saying something, but we don't know how to act on that. It's like, I don't know, I have never just given that that kind of money before. I'm probably not hearing him correct. And in those cases, sometimes we confirm what we think God is wanting us to do with Scripture. We go to the Bible and we say, what does God's Word have to say on the subject? Are there scriptural principles that can guide me in this situation? At other times, we want to talk with someone. And so we would go to someone who could give us wise counsel. We're looking for somebody that we can trust to look out for our best interest, to be honest with us, even if it's painful. Maybe it's a small group leader. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's one of our elders. And the idea is you're saying, hey, could you give me some spiritual perspective on this? I need somebody to help me think through this opportunity. Number five, God calls different people in different ways. And Scripture is very clear. We shouldn't compare our calling to somebody else's. We don't need to worry about how God has dealt with another person or the ministry that he's asked them to do or how he's used them. And it looks like they're really being blessed in what they're doing and what we do doesn't seem to be bearing fruit. That's not the way we approach this. We understand that God is going to call us. God is going to move us. God is going to prompt us or challenge us. And all we need to focus on is what is he asking us to do? Number six, start small and practice. The scripture principle is that if you're faithful in the small things, then God will entrust you with bigger things. So when God nudges you to pray out loud during the prayer time in your small group meeting, and you don't really like praying out loud, you don't feel comfortable doing that, but you realize God wants you to do that, and you go, all right, what the heck, and you give it a shot. Then what you're signaling to God is, all right, I'm going to try to obey you in the small stuff, and God is going to give you other opportunities and challenge you in bigger ways. It also is a great reminder to you that when you move in response to what God prompts in you, he's going to bless you. The more you practice at something, the better you get. So the more often you listen and respond and obey quickly to God's promptings, the better you get at it. On the other hand, there are people in churches all over the world, maybe even some here this morning, who have gotten so good at tuning out God's voice that they don't hear it anymore. If you practice ignoring God, you'll get pretty good at that too. Last one. God sometimes says no. So many of us are probably familiar with this in prayer. We're praying for something that we think God really ought to do. And God says no, or he says not yet. And that can be frustrating to us. But when we're trying to pursue God, when we're trying to respond to God, we need to keep in mind that sometimes God will say no to us. And that may seem confusing. It may feel like, wait a minute, what's going on? I was trying to obey God. But for whatever reason, God wants us to hold up. It could be that he just wants us to make sure that we're on track with him that we're on the same page. And it's, it's given us an opportunity to go back and just review what we think he's asking us to do. It could be that we're heading in the right direction, but we've got the wrong pace. And God is saying, whoa, whoa, okay, slow down just a little bit. You need to wait for me and walk with me, not ahead of me or not behind me. There is an example in Acts chapter 16. Right before Lydia makes her decision to follow Christ, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and he's planning to go ahead into a new area. And it's a great plan. It's a God-honoring plan, and God says no. And so he goes, all right, well, plan B is I'm going to go over here. And again, the Spirit of God says no. And the reason God said no in that case is because he wanted Paul instead 
to go to Macedonia, to the city of Philippi. And that's where he meets Lydia. So sometimes God says no to a good option in front of us because he wants us to say yes to an even better one. And so it shouldn't surprise us that sometimes God will say no or he'll put roadblocks in front of us. And it could be we need to just work harder and to stay faithful and head in the direction that God is calling us to. Other times with discernment and prayer, we may realize God is saying no. I don't want you to do that, at least not right now. So I hope that over the course of this month, God has been speaking to you. I hope that you have felt at various times, uh, maybe it was when one of our missionaries was speaking, or it was during one of the messages, and you felt like God was saying, you know, I want you to get moving. And you're not sure what that means, you're not sure what direction, what specifically you should do. We want to give you some time this morning to just hang out with God, and to pray, and to listen for His voice. So we're going to start with some silence here, and I want to ask you just where you're sitting to spend some time with God. You're also welcome to come up here. We've got a, a kneeler. If a posture of prayer, you know, kind of a, a putting yourself in a position where you're submitting to God, if that helps, you are welcome to come up here and to pray. Maybe it's sin that you need to confess or a struggle that you've let kind of get in the way of pursuing God. And so you could come and pray. We're also going to have some of our elders up here, and they will pray with you for healing or for help in some kind of situation. A lot of times, we may want to follow God, but the concerns of this world, very legit concerns like health or money or relationships, those things just seem insurmountable. And we would love for you to come up. They'll pray with you. If you're comfortable with it, they'll anoint you with oil, and they will pray with you. And we're going to have some unhurried time with God so that you can do that. We also are going to have communion stations. They're kind of in the middle there on either side. And so after you've had a chance to pray and to talk with God, if you're a follower of Christ, then we invite you to come to the Lord's table and to remember the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. The, the people serving you, they might say to you, the body of Christ, when you take the piece of bread. And that's just a way for you to remember it was his body that was broken for us so that we could be forgiven. And then when you take the cup, they may say, the blood of Christ shed for you. That's a reminder that that juice represents Jesus' blood that washes away our sin. So before you take communion, spend some time examining your heart, making sure that things are good between you and God. Remember and give him thanks for what he's done. But it's also a reminder to maybe think about what he's calling you to do. What does he want you to do? What's the next step of faith that he has in mind for you? It's an opportunity for you to renew your commitment and to ask him for a fresh outpouring of grace and forgiveness. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And this is our opportunity to remember Christ's work on the cross and to just splash around in that abundant grace that he offers us. So I'm going to ask uh, Jordan and the worship team to come back up, and we're going to spend a couple of moments in silence, and there's going to be some, some background music. I want you to just quietly give time uh, to God to work in your heart and in the hearts of people around you. If you want, feel free to come up here and take advantage of the opportunities to pray. In a little while, we'll sing some songs, and you're welcome to sing. Or if you still need some time with God, then just sit where you are. Just keep praying. Do whatever you feel like God needs you to do.
but we want this time to really count between you and God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for laying down your life for us. Thank you for taking away the penalty of our sin. If we choose to follow you, if we trust you, if we confess our sin, and we're willing to make you the leader in our life, then we get a fresh start with you. We're so grateful for that. And I pray that as we take communion this morning, you would remind us and renew us. For those that are struggling with trying to figure out what you're asking them to do, what the next step of faith is, I pray that you would be at work. Speak clearly. Give us ears to hear. We give this time to you, Lord, and we ask you to be at work in us. And ultimately, we want this to bring you honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.